Father God, we just thank you so much that you've given us the, the privilege of coming together to study your word. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that, that you make this word come alive to us this morning. And that you open the eyes of our hearts to, to the truth of it. Not what we bring into the text, not what we want to be in the text, but what is truly there. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit just, just guides us this morning. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, after this rich young ruler is told by Jesus that if he wants to obtain eternal life, then he has to forsake all of his earthly possessions and follow after him. And, and after he walks away in grief, we are told in verse 23 that Jesus looks to his disciples who are standing right there watching this entire conversation go down, and he says to them how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this is a somewhat shocking statement to come from Jesus, so much so that his disciples in the beginning half of verse 24 were amazed that Jesus would make such a bold statement. They were, they were amazed by it. They couldn't believe it. Now, we have the vantage point of reading this passage some 2,000 years after the fact, and we are all somewhat, somewhat kind of jaded, right, to the, to the corruption and sin that, that those who are wealthy can, can partake in. I mean, just look at Hollywood if you need an example of this. And so when we hear those words of Jesus, that it is difficult for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God, we can, we can say, yeah, yeah, I could see that. That's, that's not all you know, that surprising. But for the disciples who did not live during the 21st century, they were, they were taken off guard by this comment. They were completely surprised by it. They couldn't believe their ears. And this is because in the history of Israel, riches were often a sign of God's blessing. And you see that with Abraham, you see that with Job, you see that with David, and so on. And so the belief formed that essentially anyone who was a Jew, except tax collectors, and they were rich, they, that means they must be blessed by God. If you were a Jew and wealthy, that means you must have been blessed by God. You must be in some way in God's favor and just a little bit closer to him than the rest of the Jewish population. That was, that was the common belief. And so for Jesus to come out and say that it is difficult for those with wealth to enter into the kingdom of God was actually to, to completely flip this cultural belief on its head. And he was saying exact, the exact opposite of what the culture was saying about the wealthy. Now seeing this amazed reaction from his disciples, Jesus says to them again in the second sentence of verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now I want to pause here for just, just a moment. So I'm, I'm from the South, right? And there's this phrase that can be either a phrase of love and compassion, or it can be a phrase that is a signal that someone thinks you are a complete moron. It's a, it's a multi-purpose phrase. It really can be used either way. And feel free to say it with me if you know it. Bless their heart. Bless their heart. When you hear it, you either know you're greatly loved or, you know. 
And so it's either this, it's either this phrase of, of great sympathy or love, and, <clears throat> or it's, it's this phrase of, of great sympathy and love because you're stupid and, you know, bless your heart. And so Jesus addresses them with, with, with what I kind of believe is the equivalent of, of bless your heart. But I believe that he, he kind of somewhat mixes the two meanings there in a way that only Jesus can. And he addresses them with love and compassion, but also as children who are struggling to wrap their minds and hearts around his words. And how thankful I am for his responding to their amazement in this way. Because, because how many truths of scripture are there where we struggle? Where, where we struggle to wrap our own minds around. How many questions in the life of a believer boil up to the surface as you're trying to understand what is in God's Word? And our patient and loving Savior takes us by the hand as children and over, over the course of a lifetime guides us into deeper understanding of Himself. And though sometimes we try to yank our hand away from him like an angry toddler wanting to walk by himself, he never lets us go. Never. And so he addresses them with love. But even though he addresses them with love and patience, what he says to them is actually quite piercing. It's, it's, it's quite piercing. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And just, just to be clear, salvation, eternal life, entering into the kingdom of God is all the same thing. To be saved is to, is to have eternal life. To have eternal life is to be a member of the kingdom of God. And to be a kingdom of God means that you are saved. It's all meaning the same thing. But if you are like me and you were born in the United States and you grew up in the Western culture, then you too may have been inundated with the message that getting into heaven is actually one of the easiest things that you could possibly ever do. That all it takes is either being somewhat morally virtuous, possibly making sure that you have more good deeds in your ledger than bad deeds, or you know, at least trying your hardest to, or that it just takes simply being sincere in whatever religious system that you choose to identify yourself with, and God will honor that. There are also some who believe that, that it's even easier than that. There are some who believe in what is called universalism. Who believe that in the end, no matter what you did or what you believed in this lifetime, a God that is actually foreign to the God of the Bible will grant you a golden ticket into heaven. Except maybe Hitler. These universalists have, still have a kind of a hard time with Hitler. But there it is. Easy, easy as pie. But Jesus here is saying the exact opposite. He's saying that, in fact, it is not that simple to get into heaven. And all religious or non-religious roads do not lead to heaven. Sincerity of belief in other religions and external morality just doesn't cut it. Entry into the kingdom of God is difficult. And just how difficult is it? Jesus continues in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, there are some critical scholars who will try to downplay the imagery that Jesus is using here and therefore try to downplay the impact and the severity of Jesus' words. And they will say something to the effect of that there must have been a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle that was particularly narrow. And it was hard, but not impossible, for a camel to get through it. And the only problem with this theory is that there is no archaeological evidence whatsoever for the claim that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. None. None whatsoever. We have clear references to other gates, such as the East Gate or the West Gate, or the beautifully named Dung Gate. But there is no mention anywhere for the Eye of the Needle Gate. None. But the claim of these liberal critical scholars attempt to make is that Jesus is saying that it is not impossible for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. It's just, it's just a little bit harder, but it is, it is, it's just really difficult but that claim simply falls apart, and it does not do justice to the intensity of Jesus' words here. How hard is it to get into the kingdom of God? Well, let me put it this way, Jesus says. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, my wife sews. And so I've, I've seen what the eye of a needle looks like. And I've been to several zoos, and so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with what camels look like, but I'm not an expert on either one. But, but I do stand before you confidently, and I tell you that a camel cannot fit through. It cannot. It's impossible. And so Jesus is not just saying that it's difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God, but that it is impossible. That's the meaning of this imagery here. Now, the grand overall purpose of our entire text today is not just simply how a rich person can be saved. It can, it can seem like that at, at this point in our passage, but that's not the grand overall meta-narrative purpose to this entire text. It is how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be saved? That's the main point of this passage. But before we tackle that, within the context of this passage, it is relevant to look at the specific pitfalls that lie in wait for the wealthy in regards to salvation. Why does Jesus say in verse 24 how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter into the kingdom of God? And why are Jesus' words about the impossibility of a rich man entering into the kingdom of God so harsh and so final and so resolute? Well, I believe that Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount helps to shed some, shed some light on this. He says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the Greek word that Jesus uses for master in Matthew 6 is actually the same word that is used for Lord. And it's actually also the same word that is sometimes used in reference to Jesus. Jesus, our Lord. It's the same word that's being used there. And so you see, for this rich young ruler and for many who are like him even today, money and material wealth became his master, became his Lord. And what Jesus is making clear in this passage in Matthew is that if something is your Lord, then you live to serve that Lord. 
You live to serve that Lord. Your, your life is, is wrapped up in pleasing that Lord, in doing whatever you need to do in order to accomplish the will of that Lord. And here's the scary truth. When wealth and finances and material possessions become the Lord of your life, you bend your will to it because they have become the God that you worship in place of the one true God. And what's more, whatever is Lord of your life, whatever sits on the throne of your heart is where your ultimate value comes from. It's where your ultimate value comes from. In our specific context, when material possessions and wealth becomes your God or your Lord, they become more than just simple possessions. They become, in your heart and in your mind, representations of your self-worth and value. Your wealth and possession become intimately tied to who you are and how you perceive yourself and how you believe others perceive you. And you will strive for more and more in attempts to increase your self-worth. And every decision you make will be, will be based on the Word of God? No. No. But on what makes the most fiscal sense. Not only that, but what is Lord of your life is also where your dependency lies. It's where your dependency lies. Your feelings of comfort, of, of safety, flows from whatever or whoever your Lord, your God is. Money is used by the enemy time and time again to convince believers and unbelievers alike that their ultimate safety in this lifetime can be bought. And so we lean and we depend on and we trust in our wealth and possessions to keep us safe and feeling secure for the future. But if our coffers begin to dry up, suddenly our whole lives feel like they are on shaky, unstable, chaotic, terrifying ground. Our sense of who we are, our sense of, of self-worth begins to crumble. Now I want you to go back to the rich young ruler. And maybe you can relate just a little more with him. Because this, is, this, my friends, is why he walked away. This is why he walked away. Jesus was asking him to give up what he believed gave him worth. To let go of everything that he was dependent on to make him feel safe, secure, and comfortable. To put to death the false god that was sitting on the throne of his heart. That is why he walked away. That is why he walked away grieved. But in reality, Jesus was trying to teach this man and is now teaching his disciples that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two lords. Your love, your will, your ultimate affections cannot be split between a God of this world like money and possessions and the God of the universe, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, that we will hate and despise one and love and be devoted to the other. And the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus because he sought to serve two masters, but he loved and was devoted to his own wealth. And while he claimed to keep all of the commandments that Jesus brought before him, he failed to keep the very first most basic commandment. 
What is that? You shall have no other gods before me. Now I'm going to remind us of something here. And, and I do pray that you hear me with grace. But if you are in this room and you're thinking, well, Jesus is talking to the rich and wealthy, so hey, I can check out. If you're thinking that, I want to remind you that from the viewpoint of history and from the viewpoint of the rest of the world, you actually are wealthy. If you have a smartphone, if you live in a house or an apartment with running water and plumbing, if you have shoes on your feet and, and know that you will be able to eat today, tomorrow, and the next day by the standards of history and the standards of the entire world, you, my friends, are wealthy. And that is not to say that you don't have financial difficulties. That's not to say that at all. But when we look at this passage, we cannot use our modern 21st century standard of what is wealth. Because I have met people who would consider themselves far below the poverty line and yet live far better than this rich young ruler would have lived 2,000 years ago. And so just be careful. Be careful before you check out and believe that this passage does not apply to you. Because you don't believe that you are rich according to the standard of our Western 21st century culture. Friends, I, I, I would implore you to ask yourself a few, a few questions based on this passage. What role does money and possessions play in your own life? Is the role that it plays that of Lord? What would your response be to Jesus if he asked you to go and sell all that you have to follow him to a different city, to a different state, to a different country? Would you hear that call from Jesus and walk away from him Grieved? Are you devoted to another Lord? We must recognize that when we place our faith in Christ, we are saying, Jesus, I place my faith in you. And I recognize that you are Lord of all lords. And that you are King of all kings. And I lay down my life and all that I have at your feet. Every possession, every cent to my name is yours to use as you see fit. I love and I am devoted to you alone. Everything else I despise. And we should want the, the rhythm of our hearts, the rhythm of our hearts to match that of the Apostle Paul's when he in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter 3 reflects on all the reputation and all of the wealth and possessions that he lost in order to follow Jesus. And he says this, and, and man, pray that the Lord emblazons this truth on your heart. This, these words from Paul, pray that they become the drumbeat that you march to as you live your life. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that pearl of great worth. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Paul is a shining example of the merchant in the parable of the pearl. And friends, it is not a sin to have wealth and possessions. But we hold on to our earthly riches, not with clenched fists, but with open hands stretched out to the Lord of Lords. He is where our ultimate worth is found. He is the rock of our salvation that will never falter, that will never crumble. 
Now, going back to our passage. At this point, the disciples are actually about to lose their minds. Remember, it is the wealthy who are supposed to be those who are the most blessed by God. And if even they can't enter into the kingdom of God, what in the world does that mean for everybody else? Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. I, I really love that. They could not believe, again, what they were hearing. It was so against the grain of their culture, these things that Jesus was saying. And in their astonishment, they said, Who then, Jesus, if, if not the most blessed among us, who then, tell us, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers in verse 27. And he says, With man it is impossible. And I like to think that Jesus paused for just a second right here to allow the disciples' heads to actually fully and finally explode. But he says, not with God. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now here Jesus went from speaking about the impossibility of the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God to a universal statement about all people. With man, meaning in man's own power, through man's own striving, through man's own law-keeping, through man's own goodness, being saved, which is synonymous with entering into the kingdom of God and eternal life, is impossible. It's impossible. Now let the finality of Jesus' words really sink in. With man, salvation is impossible. What about following other man-made religions, even with passion and sincerity? Impossible. What about being the nicest person in the world? No, I'm sorry, it's impossible. What about living an extraordinarily moral life? Volunteering, building homeless shelters, giving to charity, flying to a third world country and building schools and clinics and teaching children math and doing all of that for 40 and 50 years, surely that is enough to warrant salvation. No. Jesus says, apart from God, salvation is impossible. You see, when it comes to salvation, the problem is that we're, isn't that we're not trying hard enough. It's not that we're not trying hard enough. A camel can't fit through a needle because it isn't simply trying hard enough. The camel can't fit because of the nature of what it is. Likewise, human beings cannot enter into the kingdom of God by nature of what he or she is. A sinner, by nature, is dead in their sin. And a dead person cannot enter into anything. A dead person cannot walk through the door into the kingdom of God. A dead person cannot ever hope to save themselves. Why? Because they're dead. Because they're dead. The word that Paul uses in, in the book of Romans for dead in trespasses is the Greek word thanatos. It's a really, really scary, kind of cool-sounding word, I think, anyway. But thanatos, guess what? It means dead. It means completely dead. It means lifeless. There's no room for debate. There's no room for just, just a, a little hint of life that may be able to kind of inchworm its way across the line of salvation. No, thanatos means dead. We, as human beings, by nature, are sinners. We're, by nature, dead thanatos in our sin. And we cannot hope to save ourselves. What we need 
is what only God in the prophecy of Ezekiel 36 says only he can provide. We need to be washed clean of our sin. And we need to be given new hearts that are alive in Christ that replace our dead hearts. And that is completely out of our power and ability to do. We cannot do spiritual open heart surgery on ourselves. And the stains of our sin are far too deep for us to wash out on our own. Our only hope is trusting in God to do for us what we are totally unable to do for ourselves. And so Jesus is saying here that salvation is totally and completely a work of God from start to finish. Because while it is impossible for man to be saved in his own power, with God, all things are possible. All things. And to demonstrate this, allow me to run through what only God can do in salvation that man cannot do. So for instance, it is God who, bring, who can bring new life into a spiritually dead heart. Ezekiel 36, 1 Timothy 3, 5. It is God who grants us the gift of repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. You think that you can repent on your own. We, we, we can't even do that. We can't even repent of our own. It is gifted to us by God. It is only by God's grace that we can be truly mournful of our sin. And through Him, through His grace, He grants us the gift of turning away from our sin to follow after Him. That is a gift from God. It is God who bestows upon you the gift of faith. And in Jesus, Ephesians 2, 8, we don't muster up faith in and of ourselves. You may have heard me say that before. Faith is not something that is naturally produced in mankind. Ephesians 2, 8 is clear that our faith in Jesus is a gift from God. And it is God who keeps our salvation secure. John 10, 28 through 29 in Ephesians 1, 13. We are safe and secure in the hands of God. We can't keep ourselves saved. God keeps us saved. And we are gifted by the Holy Spirit who seals us unto salvation. We are secure by God in the hands of God. And praise Him for that. Because if it were up for me, up to me, I would lose my salvation two seconds after this sermon was over. From start to finish, from alpha to omega, God is the founder, author, and keeper of our salvation. What is impossible for us to accomplish, obtaining a new heart, repentance, faith, and eternal security, is possible. It is possible with God. Now, in verse 28, Peter, the impetuous Peter, being Peter, decides to be Peter again. And he spoke up, saying, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Matthew's account adds the detail of Peter's response, saying, What then will we have? And this shows us that, that Peter and the rest of the disciples were still thinking in terms of the material and not the spiritual. Peter is saying, yes, yes, Jesus, all of that is great about, about nothing being impossible with you. But listen, we, we did what the rich young ruler refused to do. We, we left everything. We left our jobs. We left our homes. We left our families in order to follow you. So, so what are we going to get out of this? That's what Peter's asking. And Jesus responds to Peter with both a promise and a warning. And the promise is one of the most wonderful things that we as believers get to partake in in this lifetime. 
Take a look at verses 29 through 30. Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. Mark 10. Yeah, it's right here if you, if you need it. Yeah. So verses 29 through 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Now, this is a beautiful promise. It's a beautiful promise, but let me quickly tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that if you follow Christ, you will become rich with land and houses and wealth in this lifetime. This is not a proof text for the health and wealth gospel. It's not what this means. It's not what this is. And so then you may be asking yourself, well, what then does this mean? What does Jesus mean when he said that you will gain hundredfold all of these things that you gave up? And friends, he means the church. He means the church. Even if you lose every family tie, every friendship you had for the sake of following Christ, friends, you gain a new family. You gain a new family, the members of which you cannot even count. Believer, did you know that you have, you have new aunts? Friends, you have, you have new uncles. You have new brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers all around the world, and especially in your local church. And friends, if you are a believer in this room, look around you. Look around you right now. You've heard me say this before, but that you share a deeper bond with the men and women in this room than even your closest relative who is an unbeliever. You are united with these people in Christ and are all the adopted children of the Lord God Almighty. It's a beautiful promise. Now take a look at Acts 2.44. Look at the beginnings of the church. Acts 2.44 says, All who believed were together and shared all things in common. We are to have all things in common as believers. Our homes are to be open to one another. My lands should be your lands. My, my home should be your home. What I possess, what I own, should be owned and possessed by you. And friends, I don't mean this in a socialistic way where there's no personal property or anything like that, but in a way that it exudes love and compassion for one another when we are in need. We should always be ready to share what we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so while you may lose everything for the sake of Christ through the church, you gain hundredfold what you lost. However, Jesus warns that there will also be persecution. Jesus in the book of John says that you'll be hated because he was hated first. You will face attacks and temptations from the enemy. You will face slander and vitriol and possibly even imprisonment and violence at the hands of the world. But at the end of it all, Jesus says, in the age to come, you gain eternal life. And not just a, a meandering existence through eternity, but you will experience an eternal life to its utmost fullest as you glorify God by enjoying Him forever making all the persecution you face in this age not even worth comparing because you have obtained that beautiful pearl of infinite worth.
Jesus ends with these words in verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now I believe R.C. Sproul summarizes these words of Jesus well, and I will close with this. Sproul says, Jesus is saying, you can't leave these things, meaning your possessions and family and friends, for me without my taking notice. You can't outgive me. What you leave, I will replace a hundredfold. Yes, you will be persecuted, but you will receive the kingdom and all that it contains. But there will be a surprise when you enter into the kingdom. You will see that many who were first in this world are last in the kingdom. The lowly ones to whom people gave little significance, those who were last, the least of my brethren, they will be first. What gets you first place is not merit, but fidelity and faithfulness to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, that salvation is not up to me. I'm so thankful that I don't have to work towards my salvation because no matter how, good, how many good deeds I would ever do, Lord, it would never cover the countless evil deeds that I've done against you. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord, that, God, even though we were dead in our trespasses, Lord, that you made us alive in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you help us put to death any false gods, any false lords of our lives that are, that are standing as a barrier between following you in a radical way. Father, allow us to be willing to give up all we have in order to follow your calling. Allow us to see the, the riches that we are storing in heaven by following you with faithfulness and obedience, far more worthy, of far more value than anything that we could ever possibly possess here in this lifetime. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.